Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening for the first time, I should probably mention that though the title of this podcast makes it sound like this podcast is about organic wine, it's actually about the ecology of wine, the future of wine, and the regenerative revolution as seen through the lens of wine. If you're ready to go on a journey that leaves traditional wine thought far behind and explores the edges and margins of viticulture that can change the way we not only grow wine, but the way we think and understand our role as part of the ecosystem of wine, then this podcast will probably light your fire. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work that goes into each episode, we have a Patreon page, and you can link from the show notes and subscribe, and that would be much appreciated. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, I'm looking for sponsors. Please email me at info at centraliswine.com. That's info at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. And last but definitely not least, a great review on iTunes or any podcast service is immensely helpful. Thank you so much for your support. My guest for this episode is Mark Shepard. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you because Mark has a perspective on viticulture and agriculture in general that is revolutionary, while also being incredibly commonsensical. He's as funny as he is passionate, and that passion comes from wanting to share an incredibly important message, not only for producing wine, but also for our survival. Mark is the author of Restoration Agriculture, which is a top 10 Amazon bestseller in multiple categories. Restoration Agriculture is his term for eco-mimicry permaculture or multi-story perennial polyculture using what thrives naturally in your ecosystems. He practices this at scale on his 110-acre new forest farm in Wisconsin and on several other properties, and he provides agricultural consulting around the planet. One of the quotes from his book that stood out to me is when he's talking about the conventional monoculture approach and says, We have created the conditions under which pests and diseases thrive while almost completely ceasing the improvement of the crop's own resistance to the threats we've created. This is so true in wine, where we have a global monoculture of a handful of European grapes that have been propagated by cloning for 200 years or more now. And in the last 50 years, we've spent literally billions of dollars developing chemicals to enable these clones to survive while investing incredibly little in breeding new varieties that don't need the chemicals, or in expanding the idea of wine to include other ingredients besides European grapes. Mark doesn't spray his fruit, whether it's apples or cherries or chestnuts or grapevines. He employs a kind of vitiforestry, and his approach to agriculture illuminates some incredible perspective shifts in how we could think about growing grapevines differently, as well as how we could think about wine differently, as one symbiotic element in a holistic perennial polyculture. Albert Einstein said, and this is a quote you've probably heard, it's become a little cliche, but it's very true. We cannot solve the significant problems we face at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. Mark provides perspectives that I think are necessary to move to a new level of thinking, and I think they can revolutionize the way that you see viticulture. Enjoy. Mark, welcome. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Um, great. I, I mean, I definitely want to continue what we were talking about. What was the last thing that you said? 
was going to say, well, why don't you tell your audience what we were doing for the past 20 minutes before you hit record? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, we are talking about variety and great variety and, and the fact that as much as you know, there's this obsession with it, with labeling. And I think the consumer, I mean, so, you know, at Centralis, my winery, I've stopped using varieties. And now the biggest discussion that I have with people is like, I pour my wine for them and they say, oh, what is it? And what they mean is what's the variety of grape? And I say, well, we we don't list varieties. You stopped labeling the varieties of grapes that you use. Correct. Okay. It's not that you're not using varieties of grapes yes but in also in some cases like in in one case this year i worked or last year i worked with a grape that honestly the variety is uncertain unknown so i'm not don't know what it is for sure um and then i do some weird blends with like prickly pears and stuff like that so it's sort of like you're gonna get even if you knew the variety that i blended with the prickly pears it might not mean anything to you because the flavor of the wine is going to be so different Right. And what that variety tastes like. Because one of the things that I do like, you know, uh, I told you, but I didn't tell everybody else here, is I uh, ran a hard cider winery here for 10 years off a of New Forest Farm. Um, it was back when we could self-deliver. And I had a capacity of about 100 cases a week. Um, and as long as I could, you know, ferment it, blend it, uh, bottle it, and deliver it myself uh, to town, it was profitable because we're a small-scale operation. Um, But a new governor took power, and they immediately forced us to go through a distributor. And I had enough sales to justify upscaling and borrowing the money, you know, build a factory and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't want to go there. I I got a cute little 16 by 32 tasting room. You know, I've got two primary fermenters and and, um, two conditioning tanks and that's good enough for me. And so I just, I just quit. It was too much of a, uh, a hassle for, for the size that I was at, but, and, and you, you couldn't make it variety, the individual variety of the apple that I used or the other fruits that I used. the individual variety had a lot, almost everything to do with, you know, the flavor, the alcohol content, all these different other, uh, components of the experience when you're drinking, you know, a hard cider, the variety of fruit really mattered a lot. Yes. But I didn't I didn't feel the need to put it on a on a bottle to put that on the label. Yes, absolutely. Right. No, I, I agree. I mean, this variety does matter in terms of flavor and everything else. I, I'm what I'm concerned about is sort of approaching winemaking from this earth first perspective you know, from the you know, yeah, from coming from the living world rather than from a, a market and commoditization of the product and and you know sort of embracing what you i think espouses this idea of we're going it's a process of adaptation and selection and so those varieties are going to change with the conditions of the living world as the living world conditions change because we we're going to find new things that thrive that do better and i want us to have that that freedom whereas you know right now you know, frankly, like the the wine industry is essentially a global monoculture of a handful of European grapes that have been right. cloned for 200 years. And, and I mean, and that's not talking about cider. I mean, cider has a little bit of that, although, you know, I, I'm sure you've found that people care less about apple variety because they 
don't know it as well. They don't realize that it's like grapes and that those varieties. And and I think it gives cider makers that freedom to sort of just blend and have, you know, a dozen different varieties and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, so that's, it, I guess that's where of, I was going. I think part of having, you know, the variety of grape listed on, on the wine and, and declared, I think part of that is it allows uh, people who don't really have a lot of experience with growing grapes and, you know, fermenting their own wine, it gives them just a, an extra little, you know, piece of expertise that they know something. And that's important because, you know, really historically, you know, wine and wine tasting has had a rather elitist flair to it. And so if, if anybody can come in and say, oh, I'd like a XYZ PDQ variety, they know something. And that, I think that's really important for the customer to know something. But I'd like to go back to what you were saying earlier, uh, is that the freedom and in, in the adaptiveness, my whole approach, the whole restoration agriculture approach is to, over time, as we run our agricultural business, the individual uh, plants, whether they're grapes or apples or blackberries, whatever it is, the genetics of those plants that survive... Um, they change because the ones with characteristics that make them troublesome, they get, you know, they get this kind of pest, this kind of disease. They need extra water. The flavor is not quite right. They don't ripen as fast. You know, whatever the characteristics are, the ones that aren't adapted to the site, they disappear. They no longer are in the gene pool. They don't reproduce with your, with your population on site. Uh, and so as the climate changes, weather patterns changes, pest and disease uh, population pressure changes, the individual plants that are growing on my property, they come and go. And if you were to taste uh, you know, a cider made in 2022, it does not taste like the cider that was made in 2006 because we have different individual apple trees now that are the ones that are producing a majority of our crop. And the majority right. of the uh, of all the different plants that I'm working with, um, the majority of them are seedlings. I do have right. individual varieties, individuals that that we've vegetatively propagated because they have some sort of characteristic that we either want to have represented at a higher proportion in the breeding population, or a flavor characteristic that is just really fantastic. Or um, in the case with uh, two varieties, I think they were um, uh, Purdue varieties of apples, Liberty and Priscilla, they are bomb-proof. There's like hardly any insects bother them, hardly any diseases bother them. They, they just grow perfectly well with sheer total utter neglect. And I want their pollen to get into the seeds of my other apples because I'm planting apple seeds to grow into rootstock. Um, that I either, uh, while I do, I'll graft the top with a variety that I like, but I'll let one side branch grow on its own. Um, and as it proves itself through time, um, we may cut the variety, the known variety off and leave our seedling variety. And in the mm -hmm. past 25 years of uh, doing fruit here on the farm, there are four apples that, you know, right now are that, that we call separate varieties. They got their own separate names. They have their own separate characteristics. So it's, it's just like any other variety that you would have out there. Um, but you, but they 
were developed by you guys on the farm. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, you so, guys, and that, me guys. You, <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted to <laughs> use the royal we or just, uh, yeah, to, yeah. so by you. Um, well, and that gets back to, I think, what we, where we, I, right before I pressed record, what we had gotten into is consistency and this idea of consistency. And I, I you know, I, I get that as well. Like, that seems to be this, this drive that people have in terms of the market and everything like that is that they have this, you know, an old friend that they can return to in their right. glass every time they buy that bottle. Um, I think, but you could probably, I mean, there's, and that's the challenge. I mean, I, I, do you have any thoughts to say about that? I should. Just... Well, cause it's, it's really tough. I got started in the whole cider thing just before the whole cider Renaissance happened in the U S and, yeah. you know, I grew up in, in apple country, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Northeast and I drank all kinds of stuff ever since my hands were big enough to pick up apples. I was drinking, you know, hard cider. And there was some really challenging material. And what I never knew until I actually, you know, trained in enology, I never knew that there were ways to change the flavor once you fermented it. Because hmm. if you get a, a, a really good press of juice, and I'm going to use a Harrelson apple, the variety Harrelson. You press that and you ferment it till it's still and dry. It's like a really nice, pleasant white wine. And I thought that that's what cider was. It was either this really nice, pleasant white wine or it was all these various different stages of drac before it got to white wine or where mm. it veered off course. <laughs> um, right. and, and then, you know, once I started selling commercially, uh, the whole woodchuck craze happened and um, – one particular consultant is the, the, the blending master for most of the major uh, cider operations around the world. And it all ends up tasting like a Magner's or a Bulmer's cider. Well, then in the U.S. it ends up being sweeter. Now, that's not that the cider makers have to do that. You can do taste test after taste test after taste test. And the American consumer wants to have their you know, Mott's apple juice from their little sippy cup when they had it as a little kid, they want some bubbles in it and some alcohol. And it's like, as a cider right. drinker, I like the real adventurous stuff, you know, the wild yeah. ferments and, you know, all kinds of weird off tones, but that just doesn't sell. And so yeah. the cider maker and me wanted to go just wild and crazy, but I was forced uh, to blend to meet a certain, you know, identity that it has to taste like this. Yeah. Yeah, that is tough. But I, I feel like that is changing. I mean, maybe not so much in rural Wisconsin, but I, I feel like, you know, there are there are populations now who crave the that same experience that you wanted, the wild and woolly cider experience. And and it seems to be growing. I mean, it seems like incrementally growing, sort of like anything. It's new, it's different, it's dry, it's you know, it's it's wild, but uh it's 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 getting some following, I think. And just about every cider maker that I know, you know, they have their steady eddy cider that works. That that's the stuff that actually drives the train. And then they go, oh, try this and try this and try that. And so they have the opportunity to introduce, you know, different flavors to to folks. Yeah. And and actually well, I don't see I don't see enough of that with with like the grape wines. Um, you know, I I do a, a decent amount of work in California. Um, and some in uh, Southern Europe. And 
what I don't see are a lot of wineries trying to push the envelope when you go to the tasting room. I'd like to see that with the grape wineries. Mm. Well, you, you just brought up that you're working in all these areas. What, what are you doing in the, when you're working there? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, it, it actually um, varies where, wherever I go. There are some places that want to convert from their, uh, you know, high chemical intensity, full tillage operation to a more uh, organic or natural or biodynamic, whatever you want to call those kind of systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's some of it. Some folks, uh, and recently it's been more of this, is uh, they want to address uh, rainwater and runoff management because water is such a critical, uh, important issue. And then uh, others in in Europe, it was mostly working with folks who wanted to work more with uh, polycultures uh, in the vineyard. Um, And that that was a lot of fun. Yeah, what I do, what I do varies. Gotcha. Well, one thing that you you've done is written this book restoration agriculture which i read and i wanted to thank you for that because in in addition to being a really great practical resource for i guess what you know we could you would call restoration agriculture but is like multi-story perennial polyculture at scale it just it was so commonsensical to me that it was like revolutionary i don't know if that if you've gotten that comment before but it's sort of like you know what you're doing isn't common, but it's common. But what you're suggesting is so common sense as a solution to the problems of what is the dominant form of agriculture right now. Right. Um, and, and, and the basic premise of a restoration agriculture is we're going to go wherever we go and we're going to do our agriculture thing. And we right. look around us, we do some research. Well, what has been here for the past, you know, zillion years? What are the plant community types that were there? Uh, and then in that group of species, you pick out the ones that are marketable and you pick out tall trees, medium trees, short trees, vines, canes, ground covers, shade tolerance, fungi, um, animals. And then uh, once you pick those species out, manage your water resource so that rainwater uh, is captured um, and either stored somehow or spread out and soaked in, depending on your, your context. Uh, and then we attempt to mimic that plant community's natural disturbance pattern that through the you know hundreds of thousands or zillions of years that that community type has been in the area, maybe it's a place that's um, heavily influenced by lots of windstorms or fire or flood, or uh, huge herds of animals that come through and trample the crap out of everything. So we try to imitate the disturbance pattern of that plant community when we actually go in and manage it. So what ends up happening is we create a a closely mimicked natural system so that if we want to, we can walk away from it and it will be there for the next zillennia And what it will do is it will regenerate itself, which means after a disturbance, let's say that fire comes through Paradise, California, a naturally, locally, regionally adapted plant community will serve. Maybe the individual plant won't survive, but its propagules will. It'll either sprout back from the roots. 
Uh, it's seeds. Some plants need fire in order for seeds to open, but those plants in that area are naturally adapted to whatever that place can throw at it. And um, it they reproduce themselves. These systems expand. And if you take a, if you take a broccoli farm, um, and it could be the most certified organic regenerative broccoli farm that you've ever seen. If a fire comes through and burns that broccoli farm to the ground, you will not get any regeneration of broccoli. And that's the ecological definition of regeneration. So even though you have the certification that says you're a regenerative broccoli farm, it's not because it will not regenerate. So if we go to uh, any, any wine growing region around the world, the grapes that lived there and live there now um, have certain adaptations to that weather pattern, pest and disease cycles, you know, the temperature of the seasons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even as climate changes and um, when climate changes, because they're allowed to reproduce, they're not just clones, monoculture clones of, of the next lot, you allow them to reproduce, the ones that survive are now adapted to the new conditions. So it's a continually yep. adapting uh, natural plant community mimic. Whew, that was a lot of work. Yeah, that was, I love that. And so I guess my question is, you maybe don't realize how weird that sounds to some people. <laughs> <laughs> I And I, I wonder, you know, can you think back to how and when and what triggered this transition in your thinking from the, you know, I'm sure it was a process, but I don't know. If, was there a moment or a, a series of moments that you can recall vividly where this clicked in for you, where it was instead of thinking about, you know, clearing the land and putting in an annual conventional crop as a form of agriculture to looking at the land and working with what's there? I mean, was there, yeah, what, what was, was that like, transition? It was like a time period in my life uh, probably between like, you know, eight years old and, and, you know, middle teens. Cause once I got to the middle teens, I had, I had already been changed in a way I went, but, uh, oh. it was the, um, early 1970s. There was a, the oil embargo, OPEC nations cut off our, our oil supply. And, uh, within a short period of time, gasoline was rationed. And where I was at, we were allowed to get, um, five gallons of gas uh, and only on every other day based on your license plate, if it's an odd number or an even number. And the gas lines got huge and my parents immediately had to change, you know, everything they did. They started gardening in earnest. They used to have like a little garden patch out back. So then pretty soon we were up to like a half acre, you know, three quarters of an acre of a garden. Um, they bought a little Volkswagen for the fuel efficiency. They got a wood stove for, for heating the house. Well, a garden, um, let's see, I'm six foot tall and about 250 pounds, and I'm the smallest of three brothers. <laughs> you can imagine that we could shovel down the food. So here we had the biggest garden around. Um, my dad actually was the um, – he worked for a doctor as a, as a child and a doctor – taught him how to compost because back then doctors were botanists and all that. Mm. And so he was uh, one of these composting weirdos and was doing stuff organic <laughs> back when, if you said the word organic, literally you could get arrested for being a socialist. 
Um, so here he was, one of the world's you know finest organic gardeners in his day, and with like an acre, acre and a half worth of garden, we still had to go to the grocery store to buy our staple foods, you know, our carbohydrates, proteins, and our oil, our bread, our pasta, our meat. Um, and because I was the oldest and most responsible, now, I don't know about you, but if you were the oldest child, who taught you to be responsible and how do you know how to be responsible? So, hmm. but anyways, I was, I was supposed to be responsible and I was the one who was the primary market garden slave. And so I'd be out working in the garden, hoeing, weeding, making compost, hauling compost. In a garden, of course, it's out in the hot sun. I'm getting covered with dirt and dust and working my arse off. But as soon as my time was up, I could put those tools down and I ran off to the woods. In the woods, I'm in the shade. I'm picking grapes and blueberries and strawberries and wild onions and, and all kinds of different roots that are out there and hickory nuts and hazelnuts. Um, and I started to gather all these seeds and make a hyper, uh, hyper dense area of all these wild food plants. And I realized that work in a, you know, semi-natural system, farming work in a semi-natural system basically meant going out and harvesting this in order to make the conditions better for that. So every time I'd go into the woods I'm doing some sort of work, uh, but it's benefiting the next thing. And I'm getting, I'm getting a yield when I'm doing work instead of just pointless work. And maybe at the end of the season, I get a couple carrots that stroll through the soup. I had something to eat as soon as things greened up in the spring, all the way until Christmas time, there'd be something to eat out in the woods. And it, and it just, it, it dawned on me. It's like, well, why aren't we growing our gardens more like, uh, a forest or a forested edge and less like this, you know, bombed out nuclear wasteland where we kill absolutely everything except for the carrots and tomatoes. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, and the rest makes... is a, a beautiful long sorted history of, of, uh, trial by doing it. Yeah. Now, do you give the trees in that forest any credit for, trying to speak to you i mean do you have a spiritual connection in that sense i don't know what i don't know what the best word is maybe metaphysical connection is a better well, and, word and actually i i think that's a uh i have an understanding of what it is that you're attempting to ask and and i also <laughs> understand what you tried to clarify because oftentimes when we talk about things like that uh you may know what you're talking about and what you're asking. And I may think that I know what you're talking about, but what I'm thinking that you're talking about is different than what you were actually thinking about because we're not clear on what those terms actually are. Yeah. Well, I have found through experience that when you actually observe nature, um, do your best to imitate it, and then you have a active relationship with it and you interact with it, not as a domineering force telling it what to do but as a participant when you have a relationship with a natural system or or your vineyard um you will learn things that you won't find in textbooks yeah how's that right. for a safe answer that's good that's that's a safe answer <laughs> maybe maybe my answer was yes because how would i learn <laughs> stuff unless i learned from the system itself yeah 
And yeah. whether, that, whether that system was created, adapted, evolved, happened by accident, or as a simulation in a computer somewhere, I learned from it. Yeah. Yep. That's great. Um, and and I'll, actually, I'm going to use that as a jumping off point. Please. No matter where you live, whether it's in the desert of New Mexico or, you know, dry California or the humid, you know, Seattle, well, used to be humid Seattle, or any other, <laughs> other humid states well, where you might be, look at the ditch on the side of the road. There are things growing in the ditch on the side of the road. Who planted them there? Who did the soil preparation? Who did the cover crops? Who did the pest control, disease control, fertilizer? Who did the subsoiling? Who did the, you know, the, the uh, subsoil drainage? And who did the irrigation? Nobody did anything to the ditch on the side of the road except maybe mow it, hit it with an herbicide, or <coughs> crash a car on it on Friday night when you've had too much wine at the, at the uh, wine table. <laughs> that ditch on the side of the road is a model of a absolutely sustainable locally adapted agriculture and if you go to that ditch on the side of the road you will find plants that are edible fermentable uh medicinal weavable into some sort of you know basket product etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah. that's where the lessons are and everybody can see the ditch on the side of the road and it's telling you how to live where you live and it might not be native plants too it might be all crazy with you know these these non-native plants um, that are thriving quite well. Well, they're telling us something too. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, well, and in this system, let's talk. Can we talk about New Forest Farm and and how, what that looks like as well, just to give people a sense of how, what scale you're working at personally? The um, this property is 110 acres. You know, there are other properties that I uh, own and manage. Um, but this one is 110 new forest farm and it's located, uh, in the Southwestern left side of Wisconsin. If you were to go East of the Iowa, Minnesota border, you go about 30 miles into Wisconsin. It's located right there. Gotcha. It's a pocket of Wisconsin that was not glaciated in the past few ice ages. And it's, um, if you can imagine a Grand Canyon, uh, but have it in the, in the you know, central U.S., and because there's enough rainfall, all of the sides of the canyon walls are vegetated. So it's a humid, uh, eastern deciduous type, a forest type uh, in, in this canyon lands. And, and you, can't, you can't get there from here because every road is crooked. There is not a straight, there's not a straight road for 50 <laughs> miles of this place. Got uh, it. And it, it is the heartland of the Oak Savannah plant community type. And the Oak Savannah uh, was characterized by uh, fairly wide spaced trees in part because um, fire was very common. You know, many folks in California are familiar with all these, you know, wide spaced Oak trees with all the grasses underneath. Yeah. Some of the other plants that were always found with the Oaks um, and, and, Included with the oaks, I'll put the other fagaceae, oak, chestnut, and beech. All three of those are tall growing trees. They produce nuts. The beech and the oak uh, have a high oil, um, higher protein nut 
Chestnut is more of a, a grain equivalent that grows on a tree, and it's a highly perishable seed. <clears throat> then they then there were um, prunuses. You know, there were there were cherries. You know, tall cherry trees, medium sized cherry trees, bush cherries, ground growing cherries um, that were part of the system. There were um, malices and crataguses, so apples and hawthorns that were growing wild in the system. There were hazelnut was the dominant shrub in the area. Then there were cane fruits, raspberries, and blackberries. There were shade tolerance such as currants and gooseberries, grapes climbing all over the whole mess, grass and flowers all over the place, and animals, 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 animals. Around the world, yeah. savanna is the is the uh, biome that supports more mammal biomass than any other place, um, more than the forest and more than more than grasslands. And the 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 oak savanna here was um, it was the richest, moistest, largest extent oak savanna on the planet. And uh, guess what the dominant grazing animals were right here in southwest Wisconsin? Bison? They were actually mastodons. Mastodons? Yeah, the Boaz mastodon um, skeleton was found uh, just five miles south of here. And it was the skeleton that uh, laid to rest the, you know, the question of whether human beings actually hunted and ate, you know, mastodons because they were... There were cut marks all over the place, probably teeth marks uh, and, and human tools right. all over the place when they found it. And so this place is like the Serengeti of North America. And what's interesting about the savanna, it's it's a very unstable phase somewhere between grassland and closed canopy forest. Right. Um, it's unstable, but it's incredibly resilient. It can handle wind, ice, snow. You know, lightning strike, fire, huge herds of bison, you know, mastodons knocking trees over and all that. And it just keeps coming back and keeps coming back. But it requires the disturbance to stay in that phase. Same is true with the, the you know, like the California oak savannas. Once it gets all clogged up with brush, it becomes a fire hazard. And then it can burn everything down. And then it gets stuck and it can't, it can't get back into that oak savanna phase because those original conditions were messed with. So it requires a certain degree of almost constant disturbance to keep it in that phase. But in that phase, it's in a constant state of aggradation, which means the soil is constantly improving in uh, the, the O and the A horizon of the soil is getting deeper and deeper and deeper until in some cases uh, between here and Chicago, there were those topsoil that was uh, 200 feet deep. And what's interesting about that topsoil is it developed without earthworms. You know, they were not native to this area at all. So it was that plant community and those animals and all the disturbances, the wind and the fire, you know, et cetera, for, you know, 93 to 95 million years that created topsoil that deep. And we come in there, we plow it up in 60, 70 years, blow it all away. And then we're hooked on on chemical fertilizers. All we have left is the mineral dust. Right. And so, again, why it's so common sense to not do that and to do what you're doing, which is to try to replicate what it was already doing uh, successfully for millennia. Right. Um, and then that's what makes it so easy because 
the species that I chose. Geez, you can hear what I said. You know, chestnut, cherries, uh, apples, hazelnuts, grapes, currants, um, you know, animals. That's called agriculture. Every yeah. single one of those things right there, we don't have to create new markets for it. We don't have to convince somebody to try this new crazy food. It's all common human food uh, that, that you know, people around the world recognize as food. And I may not get uh, top yields of anything because there are competitive effects between different species. Um, but because it's a natural system, my input costs drop almost to zero. And many of my, of what a, a vineyard um, owner would experience as an input cost, I actually get to experience as a revenue stream. If you take a natural system like I described, the oak savanna, and you say, ah, I like the grapes, I'm going to take only grapes and plant only grapes all by themselves. Now what you've done is you've taken it out of its natural ecological context. All of the things that nature, natural processes, and natural systems used to do, you now have to do. You now have to take care of the disease um, populations. You have to take care of the pest populations. You have to make sure that the, you know, the ground cover doesn't get so rampant and rank that it overtakes your crop. So you have to do some kind of weed control. There's all these different, and, and in the soil, you no longer have the full, complete complex of soil creation, pedogenesis. Um, you don't have that process in place anymore. So now you're responsible for the fertility in the soil. So if we go back yeah. to that natural system, put all those pieces in place, we have soil that creates itself and gets more fertile through time and holds more water um, in a, a non-saturated way. And we have pest and disease cycles that come into balance with one another. And we, uh, we eventually, as our crops mature, we find a steady state yield that is predictable year after year after year, you know, fluctuates up and down and so on. Um, we end up with a, with a very predictable yield, minimal input costs, and it regenerates itself, which is also part of the program because we want to constantly be breeding forward in, in reality, we don't have like these stainless steel laboratories and greenhouses with lights and one pollen grain crossed with that and put a bag over the top. It's like, no, 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 no. This is, this is wild reproduction, the way all these plants originally were adapted uh, to, to be. Um, yeah. We just take the seeds and we plant the seeds. And guess what? Not all of the seeds are exactly like their parent. And that's the whole point of sexual reproduction is we're rolling the genetic dice as many times as we possibly can to come up with the genetic variants that will survive whatever the climate's throwing at us next. Right. And it's you, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm going to get some I want to get practical. I want to get into grapes specifically, but just in terms of looking at, you know, 110 acres where you're practicing this kind of you know, agriculture and a lot, obviously you can control the, the animals that you're adding to that landscape in terms of, you know, pigs or geese or turkeys or whatever it is. Um, what about the wildlife and, and how do you manage that situation where clearly if you have deer, you're, those deer are going to want 
to eat your grapes and your apple tree you know especially if they're young things are you excluding or using deer fences or using other forms of exclusion to protect young plants as you're as you're establishing different parts of your system in in the early years uh we did it with numbers it was just sheer numbers of plants i'll use uh sweet corn as an example if you plant a 10 by 10 patch of sweet corn the raccoons will eat absolutely every single ear <laughs> an acre patch of sweet corn they'll get like the outer four or five rows and so you get even gotcha. more you know per acre if you plant 100 acres you know you have even even uh less of a percentage of predation so getting right. the numbers out there was part of it it was also uh distraction and uh diversion and mm. uh, before planting i would i spent like a the winter and the season just wandering around and seeing where all the different animal trails were and some of the things that deer, especially because they're the biggest, uh, the biggest threat to young, you know, seedlings, young trees, yeah. and vines, I would find out where their trails went. They need food, they need water, they want some shelter. So you find a, you know, a, a thicket over here of some wild roses that have grown up. It's like, okay, there, I've got some shelter. Now, why don't I uh, go ahead and plant some very delicious trees, hybrid poplars and hybrid willows, right alongside their, their trail, going right over to this thicket. And at that thicket, dig a hole in the ground. And when it rains, that hole fills up full of water. Now they got food, they got water, they got shelter. And so how that worked out in, in practical terms, planting out the system is as I'm planting a row of chestnuts, for example, all of a sudden... Whoever's riding on the transplant machine sees a blue flag in the ground. They know that, oh, got to switch off and put in, you know, poplars and willows and poplars and willows. And so, you know, to this day, there is um, a, a major wildlife corridor that goes right through the farm. And it has all kinds of, you know, habitat stuff. It's improved deer habitat. So in the first few years, they're going along this little trail where they're used to going they're eating some willows they're getting some water they're hiding in the you know in the, in the rose bushes and all that then as time goes on a few years go by my trees are big enough that they're not going to get destroyed by all the deer plus they're hanging out in their happy zone anyways they want to hang out where their ponds are and their shelter is they're creatures of habit so that was the that was the main way of of dealing with it well once upon a time, this farm was the place where the deer went through to get from one habitat area to another habitat area. Now it happens to be the farm where the deer come from. Right. <laughs> they are everywhere and some beauties, <laughs> real beauties. Right, there. right. So when I plant uh, new trees now, you know, in, in years past, I'm planting, you know, tens of thousands at a time. Well, now I'm just doing replacements. So I'll go wipe out a block that's not productive. And I'll go stick in a few hundred replacements. Um, I use on uh, on full size trees, you know, chestnuts and oaks and cherries and whatnot. I'll use a five foot tree tube, and on hazelnuts, I'll use uh, two two foot, um, two and a half foot tree tubes. By I use Tree Pro tree tubes. They're the ones they they're less likely to bend in the wind. That seems to be the biggest issue with the tree tubes here. Okay. Gotcha. I used repellents yeah, for a while. I used like, you know, the hot pepper wax. And, you know, on those days they were eating Mexican. I used garlic, you know, garlic oil. Then they were eating Italian and it, it just never worked. 
Have, have did you tried the uh, the wolf wolf urine? I all kinds of urine. I used hair from the barber shop. Actually, what did work fairly well and it was really affordable was um, I just take a dozen eggs and you know, lob it in a five gallon bucket of water and just use that as a splash. You know, it, it wasn't rotten or anything. It just, I don't know if it masked the, the scent or they just didn't like the scent. And that worked pretty good. And it was only huh. critical times a year because once again, I'm, at, you know, having a relationship with this place and I'm finding out, you know, there's no damage, no damage. All of a sudden, wow, it just starts happening all at once. So then I could figure out what, what the timing was of when to go ahead and apply. So I didn't have to do it all the time. As far as I know, you you have some unique experience growing grapes in a in this kind of multi-story perennial polyculture, you know, biomimicry system. And I mean, even though this is how vines evolved, and there's an ancient tradition of doing this pretty much anywhere vines grow, I don't really know anyone else in North America that's doing it, at least at the scale that you're doing it. Um, is that? Do you know of, of any other? I know, I know backyard you know, and homesteader folks who are, who are doing yeah. it, using yeah. trees as trellises, but, you know, to, to do it at any scale, I don't, you know, and, and um, I, once again, I, I learned it by default, you know, I, uh, in restoration agriculture, I, I write this cute story about my, you know, my dad got like six grapevines and he made these uh, trellis posts out of concrete and he got the high tensile wire to hold it all in place. And <laughs> central Massachusetts, very humid. And every year would go by, you'd see the, 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 the vertical posts just lean a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until thump, they fall over. And it's like, as soon as you put a trellis <laughs> in the ground, it's in the process of falling apart. Right. Um, whereas a tree you put it in the ground, you put the grapes on the tree. The tree's always getting better and better until maybe 50, 75, 100, 3,000 years later, it does start to go into decline. And right. the biggest comment that I get uh, are from people who've seen grapes climbing all over trees in the wild. And they say, yeah, but how do you pick the grapes? They're like, you know, 100 feet up in the air. And then how do you prevent the grapes from strangling the branches or in a you know, a heavy load of fruit breaks branches and destroys a tree. So you have neither grapes nor trees. It's like, well, you know, if you want to have really good, high quality grapes, you're going to do a little pruning uh, in your yeah. vineyard to get more sunlight, more airflow, you know, disease pre prevention and good ripening, blah, blah. Well, and if you want to have good fruit, you're going to be pruning your tree. So instead of spending time pruning an acre of vineyard and then, an acre of orchard, why not spend the same amount of time pruning a vineyard, the combined system? <laughs> it's not that difficult. You know, you just uh, you leave on, on your fruit tree the lower you know, branches as a, as a scaffold, and then you drape the vine on the, the lower branches. Um, so, <laughs> and so this is another thing that shows that I'm not like a, you know, a, a California you know, vineyardist is to me it's it's the the vine the branches and the canes i don't know what you guys call it um yeah so so I, the the main vine uh we, when i'm planting the trees i'll go ahead and i'll plant them all at the same time and you know if i want my grapes this far apart just on the transplanter i know that when i hit this tree i'm going to put a grape and a tree a grape and a tree and so in the in the early years like say two or three years um, the, the vine is basically just growing 
it's not really going to be doing much fruiting and you're just fattening up the, the trunk of, of that vine. Then once the right. tree is, is up a little bit, you can just hang the, the vine over the, the lowest branches on that tree. Then you can start to, to prune it for, you know, your, your, your side branches and then your canes. And the, and so tr- you're, go ahead. You're planting them at the same time. Yeah. The tree and the vine. Okay. Yep. I, I, and here I, I, I would, up, that's what I do is at first. Yes. Okay. Cause I, yeah, I, I just would imagine, you know, and you're, what, what trees are you working with mainly? Or, or have you experimented with a bunch of different ones? I, 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 name your tree that will grow <laughs> and I've got grapes on it. Um, the ones that, uh, the grapes seem for some reason really, really, really do well on is mulberry. And I don't know why. I don't care. Mulberry. I just really do. Uh, the ones that I uh, I prefer um, the grapes on most is their apples. The reason why okay. I prefer the apples is because I do lightly prune my apples, so it'll be convenient for me to, you know, to move animals through the system, to harvest, you know, to do site prep before harvesting, etc. And so I'm in there doing a little pruning ahead of time on the uh, on the apples and the grapes at the same time. Whereas in the mulberries, the mulberries here I'm I'm using mostly for uh, pig feed, and uh-huh. um, the grapes will climb all the way up the top of the mulberry trees, and eventually I'll all of a sudden realize that they're out of reach, and it's not necessarily right. my reach that I care about; it's the pigs. And so the technique I used as a little kid when the grapes would be way up the top of the tree, I was a, I was a pretty heavy kid. Uh, I'd try to climb the grapevine and the grapevine would get pulled down and fall on the ground. And so that's all I do on the, uh, like on the mulberries or any of the wild trees, oaks or maples or whatever. I'll just pull the vines down after I realize that I've let them get out of control. Gotcha. And, and leave them on the ground or what happens at that point? You well, stop growing. I'll, I'll, I'll cut them um, and, and uh, drape it over the lowest branch of whatever the tree is. Got it. And then I take the, the trimmings and I put them in the, in the alley uh, between rows and then that'll get, that'll get chipped. Uh, probably the most uh, useful, expensive piece of equipment that I have is a, a heavy duty um, orchard mower, flail chopper. Mine's flail a chopper, yeah. from Italy and I can, I can shred sticks, you know, four inches in diameter with that thing. And wow. So I put okay. Everything in the alley in the middle. And um, typically what I do is at least once a year, I mow immediately next to whatever the crop tree is. And, and primarily that's done just before harvest. Gotcha. So if you come out here when it's nowhere near grape harvest, there's going to be a tangle of vines and, you know, dead sticks all over the place. And you're like, wow, this place is a mess. <laughs> just before, like a couple of weeks before harvest, I'll go through, I'll chip everything up. Uh, and what, what happens is after a few years, I think it was like seven or eight years before things really started to kick in. I can take, I can take a tremendous amount of woody material and chip it all up. And except for the biggest chunks It'll all be gone next year. It just decomposes wow. so fast. So that's the energy, you know, mostly carbon in your in your uh, in your woody debris. But that's the that's the energy for your um, your decay cycle. And yeah. I also like to influence the decay cycle. And so when I'm going through an area, I'll be trimming out larger branches. 
I'll be putting those in the bucket of the tractor for uh, inoculation later on with, you know, with uh, preferred mushroom spawn. Most, most of the mushrooms that I'll inoculate most trees with are oyster mushroom. It'll, it'll go on almost everything. Oaks and yeah. chestnut I'll use, um, shiitake, um, maples I'll use, lion's mane. I have a lot of uh, European black alder that's uh, pretty vigorously reproducing out here, and I do uh, shiitakes on that mostly. Mm. <clears throat> and then on the, uh, on the ground before I chip uh, the, the branches, I'll scatter sawdust spawn of winecap strafaria. And so oh, yeah. what I'm doing is I'm going in as I'm doing some pruning, which is helping my grapes, which is also helping my apples. Now I'm going to chip all that debris, which will help get rid of, you know, uh, disease and, you know, parasitic and saprocytic uh, fungi that may affect my trees and my vines. Um, it'll also uh, help with the fertility of the soil. I'm adding all this wood chip mulch directly to the soil, which decomposes using mushrooms that I can then harvest later on in the season. So I've just taken how many different things just by going in and and yeah. and pruning once I've set up at least four different revenue streams because also what happens is the grass now flourishes and it grows like crazy it's got an extra shot of fertilizer you know more nutrient more water available to it more sunshine now and so it grows like crazy well geez I got to get it mowed so I move the cattle in uh, and then I'll I'll after I harvest um, is when we'll move pigs in to go clean up any fruit because we'll go through in and, and uh, harvest the perfect fruit because we don't spray anything. We're certified organic for uh, 26 years um, and, you know, never sprayed anything for anything. And so when you're picking fruit or vegetables for that matter, if it's not perfect, would throw it on the ground. Now your right. conventional orchardist would say, you can't do that. All the diseases and the pests will spread. The insects will crawl out and pupate in the soil. It's like, well, look, I go through, I harvest, and there are, you know, grapes or apples all over the ground, and I move the pigs in, and there won't be any grapes or apples there tomorrow. <laughs> so they, so right. the cattle are mowing my grass. They're adding, you know, like uh, 35 gallons of urine a day, and I think it's like 72 cow patties a day off of a one cow. So that's happening, you know, early in the season. So I have enough time with the animals off, and they're not in the system during the middle of the summer. Then I go through and harvest in the fall. And then move animals again back in after I've harvested. I get my fertilizer shot. I get my grass mowed for me. Both of those are now revenue streams instead of expenses. And so you're not doing any, I'm guessing you're pulling the cows out early enough because of the organic certification to, yeah. to meet that that yeah that gap of time, whatever, 120 days before harvest. And then they go, what about, they go somewhere else, you know, in the meantime. Right, got it. And do you, uh, in that time, do you have any, I mean, it seems like the grass would be growing quite a bit during that time. Are you just mowing or? Nothing. What's happening? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. No. Oh, okay. Great. Gotcha. And, and see, uh, the, uh, so when you come through with the the flail mower, the cattle went to market this year before, uh, we harvested all of the apples. And so my, my main apple growing area on the farm it's a jungle out there it's like head high grass right okay <laughs> amazing um does that cause any challenges <laughs> what happens or opportunities what it, well see that's the thing is is what it does is it creates conditions that we then adapt to 
instead of saying okay. something's good or bad, I, you know, it just, it just creates different conditions. So some of the conditions that it has created out there is the ground will not freeze as quickly. So I'll probably have a better uh, survival of, you know, younger trees or trees that overbore and are, you know, kind of uh, wobbly nutritionally wise. Well, it also mean I'll have more uh, pests overwintering because I also didn't get the, um, the pigs out there after the apples because they went they went to slaughter. We had a heck of an apple year this year. I've never seen so many apples on the trees. You know, wow. so it creates new conditions. And then we just, you know, we just kind of roll with it next year. Got it. All right. Well, but back to go back to the ditch on the side of the road. Do you really care? Do you really care about what's going on in the ditch on the side of the road? That's how little I care about all these different <laughs> issues that people get all their undies in a bunch about. Gotcha. I'm yeah. not gonna get yeah. I'm not gonna get 45 million pounds per square inch of whatever the crop is that you're looking for. I'm getting right at the bottom end of the of the yield scale, but I don't care because my expenses are below the bottom end of the yield scale. And you're getting probably in in total, if you add up all of the low level produ- productivity of the crops, you have a total productivity from multi crops that is superior. Yeah, the agroforestry the agroforestry world uses a term called the land equivalent ratio. I just wrote an article about this today, actually. And if you grow an acre of corn, you'll get a full acre of corn. That's one. Well, if you grow an acre of walnuts, you'll get an acre of walnuts. That's one. Um, so if you want to get you know that two total yields there, you got to have two total acres of ground. Uh, but if you take that same acre of ground. Uh, that was corn, and you put four rows of walnuts at wider spacing, 50-foot wide spacing, uh, because there's such a wide spacing, you'll get extra light into it. You can put them closer within the row. You can actually fit um, 50% of a stocking density of walnuts on that one acre of ground. So you get 50%, 0.5 of a walnut crop off of that one acre of ground. Well, then you still have 80% of the land left to grow corn on. So now you're going to get 80% of a corn crop. 80% plus 50% is 130%. You get a 1.3 in order to get the same amount of yields as you got off of that one acre combined, you'd have to have 1.3 acres separate of walnuts and, and, and corn. And that has been well-researched over and over and over again, the agroforestry world. And it follows on most ecological research once upon a time, they thought that uh, high-yielding polycultures were a result of this plant helping that plant, helping this plant, helping that plant, and so on. And through gotcha. time, like at least during my you know adult life, from when I was you know studying ecology in college up till now, it's changed as new things have been learned uh, through time. And now it basically it was just like four or five years ago that the ecologist basically said it has nothing to do with the compatibilities between plants, et cetera, has everything to do with total number of species. So the total number of species per unit area, uh, the higher the species diversity, the higher the total photosynthetic yield of that area. So if I get 100 species out there, I'll have way more total yield than if I had just one. Um, Go back to the corn and the walnut example. You know, I actually will get less corn because I'm only growing 80% of it. And I get 
lower yields on my walnuts, but I got more total yield. So by getting right. lower yields, I get more yield. And <laughs> it actually does make sense. It's been well-researched. People get their PhDs on this stuff. Well, do you have any data like that for, for the grapes? And Or how are you using the grapes? Are you eating them or are you trying to make wine out of those as well? I was. Uh, I do a lot of uh, fresh juice for myself, sold a bunch of fresh juice. Uh, okay. I was using it in, in wine, but since I've stopped doing the, um, you know, the, the licensed winery, I really don't use much except for, you know, my own home juicing. And right. what was really interesting is very few people believed me that pigs eat grapes right off the vine. They will actually <laughs> stand up on their hind feet, unsupported with front feet at all, and they'll eat bunches of grapes. And <laughs> I told people over and over again that this was happening. And it was finally, just a couple, three years ago, uh, some guy was doing a, a video for the Savannah Institute, and he caught this pig eating bunches of green grapes right off the vine. And so <laughs> if, well, think about the diet of the, of the pigs that I have. Uh, uh, Ordinary pig, you'll want to have about a ton of feed to get it up to market weight. You know, that's mixed grains that you buy at the feed store or whatever it is. That's a lot of grain to convert into an animal protein. You could be feeding a lot more people with that ton of grain instead of feeding pigs. Okay. Cool. So what I do is I, I start uh, with enough of a feed ration, a grain ration, and it's all organic grown from neighbors and stuff like that. I have enough of a feed ration to keep a little 30-pound pig alive, and it's about a cup and a half. And then the rest of the season, it has to get its food from the habitat that I've created. And its first right. its first uh, perennials, aside from grass, it's eating grass first and foremost. They, they graze quite effectively. They'll go yeah. into currants. They'll eat, be eating currants, then raspberries, then um, uh, cherries start. Then mulberries, and the mulberries have the longest uh, season out here. They'll go from, you know, sometimes, you know, early July all the way till September. Um, then we have, uh, so we went to mulberries, and we got early season apples. We've got hazelnuts. We've got oaks. we got hickories. Um, you know, of course, the mid-season apples, the late-season apples, uh, walnuts, um, now grapes are starting to be ready, and then they finish on chestnuts. And chestnuts, like I said earlier, it's nutritionally equivalent to a grain. It's like brown rice or corn. So the pigs will be right. full size by the time the chestnuts start falling, and then they just plump right up, and they just they just pack on the weight with the with the chestnuts. And it's right when the chestnuts are falling that we've usually finished harvesting the apples, and then they have free access to to cleaning up all the apples. So wow. the, the pork is a radically different product than <laughs> a grain-fed pork. Right. Amazing. It takes longer to cook. Yeah. It's delicious. Oh, my gosh. It's so delicious. I, I, I'm, I'm salivating. Um, <laughs> do you, so with the, with the grapes, have you considered anything like pollarding? I know it's not your main thing, but if, if, you know, had you considered that or tried that, pollarding a tree just to have... Uh, you know, more of a trellis idea versus, you know, the, the competition that can come from a fully spreading tree? Well, fully spreading, see, in my situation, I, I'll let, uh, and I'll use apples again as an example, because that's where I have most of the grapes that I use is the lower <clears throat> eight feet, because I'm using um, 
semi-dwarfs and standards, the lower eight uh-huh. feet are almost like an espalier with the branches going uh, within the row. Uh, and then, because okay. I, I do that so I can get immediately next to that tree with the mower. And um, right. you know, any fruit that, that we pick is the low-hanging fruit. We don't go way the hell up in the top of the tree, and then the rest is for the, for the pigs. And so the, the, the grapes are just trellised on the lowest branch or branches. That where, are in, where is well, the lowest branch start? Is that around five feet, six feet? No, like it'll be, you know, two or three feet where the lowest branch is okay. start. And then eventually, because okay. what happens is, is the, um, is the cattle end up grazing them all off, which is okay. really, which is really kind of nice. You know, they'll graze them up to, up to about five feet. Um, okay. and, and what happens is it short circuits, um, uh, apple scab because most apple scab is spread in the fall and in the spring when there's leaves on the ground that have spores on it. A raindrop hits the that spore packet, it bursts, and the spores fly up in the air, and then they settle back down to the ground. And they really only you know, jump up about three feet. And so if you have a five-foot gap to the nearest branch, you, you virtually you know, short-circuit apple scab. So now you don't have to be spraying fungicides, and I wouldn't want to be spraying fungicides anyways, because I get all kinds of morels that that naturally show up in my in my apples all by themselves. Oh wow! There's another revenue stream. Wow, that's amazing. Um, have, do you, I mean, have you noticed any? Do you have any just observations or or any data about the grapes? Like, uh, I mean, are are you counting how many pounds you're getting off an acre of grapes or? Do you have any observations about, you know, their just sort of symbiotic relationship with the trees other than, I mean, the ones that you've already mentioned that they seem to really like mulberries? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> yeah. They, they just do. They just grow. I don't know. They grow faster on mulberries. I don't huh. have any actual yield data. And okay. the ones that I uh, really took care of, you know, I'd, I would limit it to eight clusters per, uh, per vine. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if that was right or wrong or whatever. That's just what I did. And even that was too much work. I'm really, really liking this, not doing anything to my grapes. Um, yep. <laughs> they're still there. You know, they're not going away. They're not going anywhere. Even if a vine, I pull a vine down, even if I don't cut it and throw it to run it over with the, with the flail chopper, it, it roots in and it makes more vine and I have more grapes and I can feed more pigs. <laughs> Got it. If it's ever in the oh, way, I'll just it. drive over it and chip it up. Nice. Have you considered, uh, or, or have you inoculated inoculated any of your seedlings with uh, like truffle spores or anything like that? Have you played around with truffles? Actually, I uh, used to supply um, a guy down in North Carolina. You guys can go ahead and find him. I don't have to say who he is. I used to supply him with hazelnut trees that he would inoculate with truffle spores. And uh-huh. I have, a, oh, probably 25, 30 trees that I had gotten back from him that were inoculated with truffle spores. And the problem is with truffles, if you want to grow the truffles, it has to be super alkaline soil. And here we're on limestone, so we, we got a, a decent um, soil pH, but they needed alkaline. They want it, you know, seriously alkaline. And it was just too much of a nuisance doing inputs. And, you know, I just right. have this, this aversion to doing input-based agriculture Agriculture is supposed to be yielding me outputs. Thank you very much. It shouldn't be requiring inputs. And so I still have that block over there and they're surviving. The trees are surviving. 
because truffles are actually, you know, they're, they're saprophytic or parasitic. They, they actually do uh, damage the tree and will eventually kill it. And so ah. the hazels over there aren't doing well. So I suspect that they've got truffles on their roots. I've never bothered to dig them. Huh. Okay. Fun. All right. Well, that's not, I mean, I don't know. Anything else you have to say about the grapes at all? I mean, as a, or any closing thoughts at all? I don't want to keep you forever, but I, you know, <laughs> just love, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to keep you forever, but I, I want to be kind to you. Well, you know, I'm available for conversations at a later time. That's not a problem. Um, awesome. Well, I actually, probably the comments that I would, uh, that I hear the most, there was one person I saw a book review. It was, it was the last time I wrote a book, uh, read a book review just because, you know, the, this, you know, pontificating person with multiple letters and periods after their name, um, <laughs> about restoration agriculture, which, you know, happens to be an Amazon bestseller and it's only one half of 1% of all published books ever make it to bestseller status so it hits somebody's nerve well this pontificating professor um basically said that well this all sounds good in theory but it's just not practical on the ground you'll never get enough yields to you know da 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 and away he goes and it's like he has no clue most people just don't believe that plants grow and that certain plants will grow in certain regions. Don't try to grow saguaro cactus in north central Alberta. It's a really stupid idea. Well, likewise, don't try to grow something that requires, you know, 60 inches of water a year in Central Valley, California. You know, there are things that are adapted to your place. Every single place around the world except for Antarctica um, has supported human cultures that had art, music, you know, spirituality, poetry, uh, they experienced love. Uh, every single biome on this planet has supported human societies with the plants and animals that grew there. We have to relearn that everywhere around the world, almost like re-indigenizing ourselves to the place instead of imposing our will on a place. Go to an area, find out what wants to grow there. What will grow there? And I'll use California as an example. I, I was uh, consulting on a on a uh, vineyard, and they had a horrible problem with those Luther Burbank blackberries. I mean, walls and walls and walls of these blackberries all over the place. And they wanted my help with the blackberries. I said, "Well, wait a minute. You run, you run a winery. Here's the solution." You, you don't have to spray anything on these. You're actually spraying herbicide on these things, and you can't kill them. You're ripping them out of the ground, and you still can't kill them. That's sustainable, and that's low cost because you can't get rid of these things. And they're, they're, they're not diseased. Nothing seems to bother them. So why don't you go ahead and harvest these and squish them and ferment them and make wine? And I was greeted with a nose in the air and a huff. And that's not what we brought you here for. We brought you here to help us convert to organic and get rid of these GD blackberries. And da, 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 da. we grow wine. We grow XYZ variety of grapes. And it's like, okay, I see we have a problem here. So what, what the yeah. real problem was is that we had a tremendous resource that was not believed. 
and it was not utilized. It was cost-free except for harvesting and pressing. Um, yeah. And they wanted to spend more money to get rid of that so they could plant things that don't want to grow there that they'll now have to put on life support in order to keep them growing there year after year after year. And there's a word for that in the English language. I call that really, really stupid. <laughs> Just plain stupid. People don't believe that it's possible. Well, this brings it full circle to that whole idea of a variety and why, you know, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at was like this obsession with a grape variety when it, it, you know, it just takes us away from this process of looking at the land from what it provides. And that's, that's where we should start, not with our desire to make the best Cabernet in the world or make the best Pinot Noir in the world, you know, wherever we are in the world, but to look at what's there and to, and to, you know, find a sustainable form of wine that is actually from that area that like that they would have a very unique wine because that there's they're probably surrounded in california by a bunch of people growing grapes that you know are the same kind of thing that they want to grow and instead they uh they have this great opportunity to to stand out um and do something unique with something that doesn't cost them anything you know it doesn't cost them any extra and what's really Um, great about this conversation we started there with varieties and wine we're finishing here with varieties and wine what we should have done is we should have been sitting around a picnic table with some olives and some wine and had this conversation. <laughs> let's do that again. Let's, do that. <laughs> let's, uh, let's make that happen. Let's do that. Well, thank you. Thank you for this conversation, despite the fact that it's virtual and uh, without the wine. But I, I really appreciate you and, and your perspective on agriculture. I, I think it's desperately needed. And I really thank you for sharing it. Well, thank you for the invitation to be on here, and I've I've uh, had a really good time, and I hopefully hopefully some people can learn something that will um, change your mind and help us all to live on this planet in a, in a more ecologically sound and sustainable manner. Well said. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you're still listening, you made it all this way. You must really enjoy it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please feel free to leave a review. It helps a lot. Or feel free to contact me directly at info at centraliswine.com for any feedback or questions. That's info at centraliswine.com. C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Centralis is actually my winery. It is the sponsor for this episode until we find new sponsors. So that's why I use that email address. Thanks so much and look forward to hearing from you.